Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, and the word of the Lord reads, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. So while you have your Bibles out, please just turn with me a little further forward to Philippians chapter 1. Ephesians. And we're going to look at uh, verse number 6. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As we have uh, taken our time to walk through this letter to the Romans, uh, because this is the 47th part of this series. And as we've talked about the gospel and the nature of our redemption, one of the truths that we are reminded of continually is the fact that our salvation and redemption is the miraculous work of God Himself. He is the one who began this miraculous work in us, and He is the one who will bring it to completion. And because of that, He provides us everything we need to complete our redemption, even the things that we don't know that we need, which is actually what we're going to see in our text today. This is why I push back so quickly when someone argues that a true Christian can lose their salvation, right? that, that, that the person who is born again somehow can, who is saved can then by his own power unsave himself. And I, I, I push back on this because it really just assumes so much it assumes that a person who was once born again and adopted in the family of God has the ability by their own effort and strength to undo all the miraculous work that all three persons of the Trinity participated in. The thing that we remember is that being saved from the penalty of sin and progressively from the power of sin and then ultimately from the presence of sin when God finally finishes His work of redemption, that that is is in fact an earth-shattering miracle. The truth that God can save a sinner who is covered up in his iniquity, who actively rebels against God, a sinner who loves his sin and hates God, the truth, that truth that God can then take that person, transform their hearts from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh and give them a new nature and give them the gift of faith and repentance and wash away their sins and clothe them in the righteousness of Christ and put His Spirit inside them and adopt them into His family so that He can spend eternity with Him. That is a miracle greater than the parting of the Red Sea. 
Salvation of a sinner is a miracle greater than the healing of a blind person. It is a miracle greater than raising Lazarus from the dead. It's a miracle, actually, that would rival the miracle of creation itself. You see, Christianity isn't about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. A sinner who comes to faith in Christ is a miracle so big that it is the work of all three persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three of them, in their own way, participate in our salvation. The salvation of every single believer. God the Father is the one who who ordained and decreed the plan of redemption, the redemption of His people. And He promised those people to His Son as a bride. And He sent His Son, Jesus, into the world, miraculously into the world, into creation itself. And Jesus, the Son, secures that redemption. He takes on a full human nature and then earns redemption for them through His perfect life of obedience and then through His atonement by His blood for their sins on the cross and then to resurrection, to new life. And the Father and the Son then send the Holy Spirit who takes that redemption and applies it to them. The Spirit is the one who convicts them of their sins, helping them to see their need for Christ. He is the one who changes their hearts. He is the one who regenerates them and gives them a new nature. He is the one who enables them to have faith. He is the one who comes then and indwells them and lives inside of them, leading them, as it says, into righteousness and sanctifies them and conforms them more and more into the image of Christ. God is the one who begins this supernatural work of salvation in the believer, and He is the one then who will finish it. And what we see in our text today is God helps us and provides for us the things that we don't even know that we need. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and we'll begin looking at verse 26. And before we get all the way in here, it's always important to remind ourselves where we are in context. It's really easy to to just kind of take a Bible verse, pluck it out, and talk about it without actually thinking about where it's situated in its context. And the first thing we have to remember is that Romans was written for a purpose, that Paul wrote this letter to the believers in the church in Rome in order to explain the gospel in great detail so that he and them were on the same page. And because of that, Romans then is the best and most complete explanation of the gospel in the entire Bible. The Gospels historically tell us what happened. Paul then tells us why it happened and how it affects us. And so in Romans chapter 1, Paul declares the Gospel is the power of God to save all of those who believe. And then he explains what the Gospel is. And he begins by explaining to us why the Gospel is necessary. Which, by the way, is the bad news. And the bad news is that all of mankind is by nature sinful and under the judgment and the condemnation and wrath of God with no hope of fixing it by themselves. And as Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the universal status of all of humanity. But then right after that, Paul then declares the good news, the magnificent good news that mankind is justified by grace, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. Paul makes it clear that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, and that is alone, apart from anything else that we can do, 
We can't earn it. We can't work hard enough for it. We can't be sincere enough. It is about what Christ has done, not what we ourselves do. It's about us believing God's promise and then trusting in what Christ has done. And then right after that, he explains this. He explains the blessings the gospel gives to those who believe. Right? First of all is peace with God. Where we were once His enemies, we now have real peace with God. And even more, we have access to God in all of His grace. And then we have the Holy Spirit, it says, pouring out the love of God in our hearts. We know that God loves us because God Himself is pouring that love into our hearts, so we know it for a fact. After that, Paul explains how the gospel works. How is it that a Christian you know, can be saved? How is it that Christ can then stand in our place and earn for us a righteousness that we don't deserve and then atone for our sins that He didn't earn? Paul explains that we were once in Adam and how we were under His covenant headship and under the curse of sin, but now by faith we are united with Christ in the new covenant under His headship, and by faith we participate in His death to sin and His life, His new life, which, by the way, is what baptism symbolizes. Again, something we will see today. And then Paul explains how we've been set free from the power of sin as well as the penalty of sin and that we have been free to become truly obedient to Christ. And then right after that, Paul addresses two of the most common objections to the gospel, the, the objection of both the legalists who demand that you must keep some rules or do some things to be saved and the antinomian who says that the laws of God are irrelevant and that a Christian is basically free to do whatever they want to do, even live in unrepentant sin. Paul explains that, that we have been set free from the requirements to keep the law to be saved, but those who are in Christ have been renewed and have a new nature and have the Spirit in them that produces a sincere desire to become obedient to Christ. And this new nature, this spiritual nature, is at war with our old nature, our flesh. And our hope isn't isn't for us to try really hard to be good. The hope, he says, is for us to continue to depend on Christ by faith. And then after that, Paul then begins chapter 8 and unpacks the most glorious truth of the Christian faith, the assurance and security of the believer. And he begins his chapter promising that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he ends with the promise that there is no separation from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he declares that those who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit living in them who adopts them into God's family and enables them to come near to God the Father and who also simultaneously bears witness within them that they are, in fact, God's children. And not only are they children, but they are heirs with Christ Himself to a hope that is so incredible and so wonderful that even the worst sufferings of this life have that the, the, the worst that this life has to offer us is nothing compared to the hope that we have. The hope that when Christ finishes His redemptive work, when the world is finally new and perfect, and where our bodies and minds and character are new and perfect, and where we are finally permanently able to be in a close personal relationship with God Himself, the relationship we were created for, that time when there will be no more tears or pain or death or sorrow, that is the hope and the inheritance that we have been given. It is a guarantee for those who trust in Christ. And it's in light of all of that that Paul now says, likewise, 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And, and right from the beginning, this text ought to encourage you today and cause you to cling closer to the hope that you have in Christ. Because Paul declares in clear terms that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who helps you in your weakness. The Holy Spirit helps us when we are weak. Can I get an amen to that? And by the way, this is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made before He left the earth. In John chapter 16, verses John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, he makes a promise about the Holy Spirit. He says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. This is the comforter that Christ promised. This is the helper that he's talking about, the one who would dwell in us and be with us forever and who will help us. The Holy Spirit was given to us by God the Father to help us. And that by itself, brothers and sisters, for me is more than enough to worship God for this morning. That, that by itself is enough to glorify and praise Him. The truth that you are never, ever alone. The truth that God is always permanently with you. That He never abandons you, that He never leaves you, and that He is always there to help you. That by itself is a glorious, incredible truth. And I could stop preaching right there, but I won't, right? I could, but I won't. The truth is we ought to praise and worship God today because He gave us the Holy Spirit to be with us and help us. But, but notice how, how we, when we talk about Him, we use the pronoun He, which even Jesus does. Jesus says He. And Paul in this text actually says the Spirit Himself. Now, why is that important to us today? Well, it's important because it helps us to understand the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force as some groups would, would say that He is. The Spirit is not something that just acts upon us. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a Him. The Spirit is a person with a personality, with a mind and a will and with emotions. As we're told, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a He, and He is a person, a person in the Godhead. He is one of the persons of the Trinity that we sang about this morning. And this isn't a new idea, actually, because this person is identified as the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Yahweh or the Spirit of the Lord that we find in the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, you will find again and again and again the the reference to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is God Himself, and He is the one that is in us and with us and helps us. But also notice the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father. Paul says, He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. There is a distinction here. The Father is the one who searches hearts, and He knows the mind separately of the Spirit. See, it's not the Father who lives in us. 
As Christians, we ought to be clear about these things. It's not the Father who died on the cross. It's the Holy Spirit who lives in us because He is the one who applies redemption to us. And not only does He live in us, but then it says He is the one who helps us. And this, this verb here for help in this text in English is really kind of tame. Because in Greek, this word literally means to grab hold of. The idea behind the word is that something is grabbing hold of us and assisting us and lifting us up. It's kind of like the idea that you're walking with someone and they begin to stumble and fall or, or they're weak. And what do you do? You grab hold of them to strengthen them and to steady them and to help them and lift them up. That's really the idea behind this word help. The Holy Spirit, in a very real sense, helps us in a very powerful way. And notice that it says that he helps us in our weakness. And this is actually important for us to think about because Paul could have just said that the Holy Spirit helps us. And that would have been true and he could have left it at that. But he's very deliberate to make a point to say that he helps us in our weakness. You see, the thing is, is it's one thing for, for, for us to have help when we're capable. It's one thing to help someone when they're capable. For example... Um, the school dropped off a pallet of water, you know, out here at the church for us to distribute to the community. By the way, if you guys need some more water, please, by all means, grab some before you leave today. But they delivered some water for us to distribute to the community, and um, I am actually capable of unpacking that pallet by myself. I am capable physically of bringing all those cases of water into the fellowship hall by myself. I could absolutely do it. I'm capable Right? My body works fine, but I still called my kids to come help me, and they did help me, right? And they were a real help to me because we got it done a lot faster, right? But understand, they helped me with something that I could still do on my own, right? They helped me even though I was capable of doing it by myself. That is not the kind of help that Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying that the Spirit helps us because we can't do it on our own. That's why he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This is a really specific point. Um, the word weakness in the Greek means want of strength or illness or frailty or, or calamity or even suffering is another way to say what he's saying here, which, by the way, helps us with the context because the context, if you remember, is the suffering that we face in this in this life, holding on to Christ. But the, but the word weakness literally refers to an ailment or a condition that deprives someone of accomplishing what they would want to do. It's this idea that you, you can't do it. And the idea that Paul is communicating is the Holy Spirit who lives in us is the one who grabs hold of us and comes alongside of us and lifts us and strengthens us to do all the things that we are too weak to do on our own. That is the idea. I mean, think about this. It's, it's like this. Think of a person who is too weak to get out of bed on their own. Someone has to come alongside them and then lift them up and then pick them up and lift them out of bed. That's the idea. Or, or someone who is too weak to feed themselves. Someone who cannot physically put food in their own body. 
someone comes and brings the food to the table and then makes sure that it's in bite-sized portions and then takes the spoon and then dishes some of the, the food up and then takes the food and puts it right next to their mouth. That's the same general idea that, that, that Paul is making here. You see, the reason why we can hold on to Christ in our suffering, the reason why we can hold on to Jesus when it seems like everything in the world goes sideways is because God the Holy Spirit is the one who is lifting our hands to Christ. God the Holy Spirit is the one who is wrapping our fingers around Christ's hand and giving us the strength to hold on to Him. He is the one who, who helps us when our, when our faith is weak and frail. How many of you have been there before? Right? He is the one who lifts our eyes to the heavens. He is the one who helps us to grow in obedience because Lord knows we can't do it by ourselves. The Spirit is the one who helps us in our weakness and in every part of our weakness, including our ignorance. Because notice what Paul says here. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for or because we do not know want to pray for as we ought. You see, not only are we weak, we're also ignorant. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that we ought to pray for certain things and we ought to pray in certain ways according to the will of God, but we don't because we don't even know how to pray that way because we're ignorant. You know what's worse than not being able to do something? being unaware of the fact that you don't know how to do something. What Paul's referring to here is kind of the worst kind of ignorance. Right? In fact, there's four states of competency in the world. I don't know if you realize that. There's four states of being competent at something. Being, beginning with conscious competence. Conscious competence is where you, you, you know how to do something, right? but you have to think about it. Right? Maybe you know how to paint, but because you don't do it all the time, you have to think, okay, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. I know how to do it, I just have to think about it, right? It has to be on the front of my mind, right? I know the steps. Then you have unconscious competence. It's where you know how to do something, but you don't even have to think about it. You just do it, kind of like most of us when we drive. You don't have to actually think about all the steps of what it takes to get on the road. You just pick up the keys and you go. You don't even give it a second thought. And it's, it's just automatic for you. In fact, you're able to drive and um, adjust the radio and drink, your, drink water or carry on conversations without even thinking about it. Some of you are good enough that you even can text while you're driving when you shouldn't do that. But Well, well then, you have, then you have conscious incompetence. This is where you know something or this is where you don't know how to do something, right? That you're aware that you don't know how to do something, but at least you're aware of the fact you don't know how to do something. For example, you are all, every one of you, conscious of the fact that you don't know how to speak Russian, right? I mean, you know that the language exists. You know that there are people in the world today that speak it, and you could probably even recognize it when you heard somebody speak it, but you can't speak it on your own, right? You know the language, you're, you're consciously incompetent. And there are lots of things that, that we don't know how to do that we're aware of. Like, I know for a, for a fact that I don't know how to build a computer program. 
I mean, I know that people do it. I just, I don't know how to do it, right? I know that I don't know how to work on jet engines, right? I, I know that I don't know how to navigate a ship across the Atlantic Ocean. There are lots of things that I'm aware of, I'm painfully aware of, that I don't know how to do, right? But because I know that I don't know, I, there's still hope because what? I can learn. Because I know I can learn. I can learn Russian. I can learn computer programming. I can learn how to work on jet engines. But then there is unconscious incompetence. That's where there are things that you don't, you don't know or can't do, but you're not even aware of the fact that you don't know them. Another way of saying this is you don't know what you don't know, right? Did you know that there is a theory in quantum mechanics about quantum entanglement that states that if you take two particles that are entangled at the quantum level who are separated by millions of light years, that if you manipulate one particle and change its rotation, it will simultaneously manipulate the other particle light years away to find the speed of light. Right? He knew that, but you didn't. Right? And guess what? There, there are lots of things like that. You just don't know that you don't know. There are lots of things that we're completely ignorant of. And, and what, that's what Paul is saying here. Right? Not only are you weak, but you're ignorant. We are ignorant of the things that we're ignorant of. We don't even know that we're ignorant. We're weak and helpless, and we don't even know the things that we ought to be doing or how we ought to be praying. And so again, tell me then how powerful enough does a person have to be by their own strength then to undo the will of God? Paul reminds us that we are weak and ignorant, but Paul says the Spirit helps us in that area. And not just assist us, but he actually lifts us and strengthens us. Right? And one of the most important ways that he strengthens us is in the area of prayer. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep, with, too deep for words. Now, this is a verse that a lot of people will misinterpret because it's been used as a passage to validate speaking in tongues in our modern context. But from the context, this is clearly not what Paul is talking about here. First of all, what Paul is talking about in these groanings, is that they are inexpressible. The, the Greek language is making it clear that these are not words or languages. Tongues rightly understood are languages. Even for those languages that people believe that are speaking in, in angelic languages, those are still languages with words. What Paul is describing here are expressions that are not able to be put into words. Literally, what it means is wordless expressions. In fact, the key to understanding this is the, the word groanings itself. Because when you combine that with the word likewise that begins this verse, it helps us to see that there's a connection to the groanings that Paul's already been talking about in the previous section. If you remember, the context is what? The context of our present sufferings. In verse 18, Paul says, For I consider the sufferings 
of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning this in inexpressible longing to be set free together with the pains of childbirth until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we have we were saved these groanings are all connected together these are connected to the hope that we long for the hope that we hope for and these groanings are connected to the sufferings that we endure in this life, the suffering that we experience here and now. Why? Because we live in a world that is, that is in bondage to sin, in bodies that are still corrupted by sin. That's why your back hurts when you get up in the morning. That's why, you know, the dead collectors keep calling. That's why you're cross-threaded with your with your neighbor or your loved one. That's why, you know, at times you have a broken heart. Right? And so there's a connection here. The Spirit Himself groans with us, expressing the desires and longings within us that we ourselves can't even put into words. You see, there are times in our lives when we don't even know what to pray for. When we meet difficult times, should we pray for the strength to endure the trial? Or should we pray for God to deliver us from that trial? When someone's sick, should we pray for their healing? Or should we pray that God would use that infirmity to, to change their heart? Because the reality is we don't know what the end is. We don't even know what God's plan and purpose is. We don't know what God's will in that situation is. When my mom was diagnosed with cancer, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed for my mom to be healed from cancer. That was my hope. But it would have been tragic if God would have healed her physically, but if she would have remained still in her unbelief. But God used her cancer to bring her face to face with her need for Christ and in her lifetime, she repented and believed the gospel and now is in the presence of God and I have the hope and the assurance to be able to see her. Right? I didn't know at the time what to pray for. I just prayed. Now, because I was praying for the wrong thing, was my prayers worthless and a waste of time? No. The Spirit helps me even when I pray for the wrong things. He knows what I need to be praying for. Even my, my prayers are for the wrong thing. And understand, I have prayed for people who've gotten healed. It's happened before. But I've prayed for others who didn't. Sometimes in the midst of our suffering, we don't know what to pray for. We just pray. And there are times that you may not even know how to pray. There was a point in my life when I was in such a deep, dark depression and so brokenhearted that I just simply couldn't pray. I wanted to. I, but I physically couldn't do it. I mean, I remember trying to get alone with God and praying. I remember sitting by myself in the quiet, simply just pushing out the words, Heavenly Father, and then nothing else would come out after that. Nothing. 
I just sit there in silence and in tears because I didn't, I didn't know what to pray. I couldn't even formulate words. I just sit there and all these emotions and feelings and groanings inside of me and I wanted desperately to be close to God. I wanted to tell Him what was going on with me, but I couldn't do it. I just literally could not put those groanings into intelligible words. But I was finally able to say three words. Lord, I trust you. For weeks and months, that was it. That's all I could say. I I couldn't express myself. I just said, Lord, I trust you. What I didn't know then is what Paul is telling us here. Is that even though I didn't know what to pray for or how to pray in my suffering and in my weakness. God himself, the Holy Spirit, was there with me, interceding for me, communicating with the Father all that was in me and all that I needed to be able to say that I couldn't say because I didn't even know what to say. The Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What hope-inspiring words those are. What a promise that is to take home with you today. And here's the important part. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now in context, as we have said, he that Paul is talking about in this particular spot When he says, he who searches hearts is God the Father. That's the distinction there. And what Paul is saying is, God the Father knows intimately what is in the mind of God the Spirit. And the reason why he knows it is because of the intimacy he shares with the Spirit, because they are both one God. As we say theologically, they're of the same substance and essence. And so, of course, the Father knows what the Spirit is praying for on behalf of us believers. But what we... What we need is is perfectly communicated and perfectly understood. Boy, I'll tell you what, if there could be something that could change in my life, if I could have just that, right, to be able to perfectly communicate and to be perfectly understood, can you imagine how much trouble that would save you? Can you imagine how much better your life would be? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, that's the kind of communication that goes on between the Father and the Spirit. It is perfect communication. What you are feeling and what you are going through and what you need is perfectly communicated to God the Father, and it is perfectly communicated and understood. But that's not all. Paul says, He who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. (laughs) Think about this. This is just so mind-blowing to me. It is the will of God that God Himself intercede on our behalf before God Himself, praying for and for the benefit of believers who don't even know what they need intercession for. I know that was a mouthful, but I want you to think about that, all right? Let me say that again. It is the will of God that God himself intercede on the behalf of believers before God himself, 
praying for and for the benefit of those believers who don't even know what they need intercession for. God Himself does for you the things that God requires out of you that you don't even know that you need to do is the essence of what is being said there. There is a a way you ought to be praying to God. There is a way that accords with the will of God for you to pray to Him, but, but you don't even know how to pray the way that you ought to pray for because not only are you weak, but you are ignorant and don't even know that you're ignorant. Which means if it was left up to you and your own devices, you would be helpless and hopeless. Because you don't even know what you don't know. But God the Father sent God the Son into the world to do for you the things that you couldn't do, right? To live the perfect life that you couldn't live, to obey the law that you broke, to make atonement for sins that you committed so that you could be justified by grace through faith. And if that weren't enough, then He sent God the Father, sent God, the Spirit, to live inside of you, to pour out His love in your heart and to bear witness that you are His child and then to intercede for you and pray for you on behalf of you all the things that you don't even know that you should be praying for. That God, the Holy Spirit, picks you up and strengthens you in your weakness and suffering and takes that groaning inside of you, that longing to finally be free and to be at home with God in a perfect world with a perfect body, mind, and character, and He strengthens you to be able to endure those sufferings of this world. And then He goes to the Father on your behalf and perfectly communicates what your heart is crying for and what needs to be communicated, but you don't even know how to communicate. And the Father hears the Spirit and receives those prayers on your behalf for your benefit. And it's all according to the will of God. God does it for you. That's why Paul can then confidently and faithfully say the words, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a fact. And that's why Romans chapter 8, we can say, is the pinnacle of the gospel because salvation is 100% the work of God from start to finish. It is all God all the time. God is the one who ordained your redemption. God is the one who paid for your redemption. God is the one who applies that redemption to you and doing all the things for you that you don't even know that you should be doing. That's why basically Paul will say next in the next section that we'll unpack next week, and we know, and we know for a fact that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That's the promise. Why? Because it's all God all the time. He even does, he even does the things for you that you know that you, should, that you don't even know that you should be doing. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And if that's not clear enough that salvation is completely the work of God, then right after that, Paul's going to say, and for those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, the Son, might be the firstborn of many brothers. 
and whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified, because the assurance of your hope is guaranteed by God himself. If you were in Christ, if you were born again, if you have repented and believed the gospel, you are safe completely in the hands of God, no matter what happens outside. Why? Because salvation is the work of God, and He even does for you the things that you ought to do, but you don't even know that you ought to be doing. God Himself carries you along to help you in your weakness and in your suffering and in your ignorance and intercedes for you on your behalf according to the will of God. Praise the Lord for that, right? As John Murray said, the children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven, while the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. Christ right now, if you're in Christ, Jesus right now is at the hand of the Father, the right hand of the Father, pleading your case and interceding on your behalf. And the Holy Spirit right now is in your heart praying to the Father all the longings of your heart and even the things you don't even know that you should be praying for. This, by the way, is why Paul will later say, if God is for us, then who can be against us? So what do we do with this, this truth, this mind-blowing truth? Well, first, as always, forever, I will say, repent and believe the gospel. If you're not in Christ, if you have not come to faith in Jesus, I call you today to repent and put your hope in Jesus, right? There is hope for you today. Today is a day of salvation, right? God himself can save you from your sin. God himself will do for you the things that you don't even know you need done. You just need to trust in Christ. Turn to him and put your trust in Jesus and be saved. And if you're ready to do that, then come see me afterwards. I'll be happy to talk with you and walk you through the scriptures and how you know that you, and how you can be confident in the fact that you have been redeemed. Secondly, as always, rest in this truth. Man, we get so caught up in this performance-based world and then you realize, man, I didn't pray today, I didn't do this today. Oh, my finger slipped when that guy cut me off when I was driving on the freeway and, you know, that, 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 that bad word slipped out of my mouth, you know, when I stubbed my toe. Oh, I wasn't really very neighborly to my, my, to, to my friend because I was, had to get into the house really fast because I had things to do and I didn't do this. And, and you can just feel like, oh, I'm just this horrible person. And what you got to realize is, yeah, that's why you're saved by grace through faith, right? What you need to do is rest in this truth. Your salvation is not contingent upon your ability to keep rules or, or make God love you. Your salvation is based upon what Christ has done for you and you trusting and resting in that. And he even goes to the links to make sure that he does the things for you that you can't even do for yourself, that you need to do, that you don't even know that you need to do. Rest in Christ. All right. Third, run to the throne room of heaven. Run to the throne room of heaven. Pray. That's what Paul says. Pray at all times about all things unceasingly. Why? Because even the prayers that you're going to mess up, the Holy Spirit's there fixing that and, and adjusting that and, and, and communicating what you really need to be saying anyway. You've been invited 
to come boldly before the throne of grace. God has given you that right that we can come. You know how like kids can like come to us and ask us questions and sometimes they don't say the right things, right? And how sometimes they say really funny stuff. It's just kind of like how it is between us and God that we are just that ignorant and even worse. But he is patient with us and loving with us and the Holy Spirit is there interceding for us. So I'm, I say that to say is like, so when you find that you, the, the world is collapsing in on you, turn to God and run to the throne room of grace. When you have fallen face down and made a mess of things and, and fall into that same sin 10,000 times, that you don't run and hide and try to put yourself into a spiritual penalty box. You turn immediately to the throne room of grace and say, Lord, you promised to save me. Save me. Run continually to the throne room of grace. Spend all of your time there knowing that even when you say stupid stuff, the Holy Spirit's there fixing it anyway. The whole, the God is never offended by your inadequacies to pray. He just says to pray. So run to the throne room of grace. And then finally, as always, rescue the lost. Be on mission to share this hope. Because I'm going to tell you right now, your friends need to know that there is a God who loves them and who has, who has provided sufficient sacrifice to provide all of their needs. And then also on top of that, to give them what they need for the things that they don't even know that they need. That same hope that you have right now is the hope that you can give to your neighbors and your friends. Just call them to repent and believe the gospel. And guess what? You go, Pastor, I don't know what to say. That's fine. You know, just invite them here. And then maybe, you know, what you could do is, you know, we can sit down and talk and I can help you kind of like have some things to say in common. I'm happy to share with you how you can be on mission to rescue the lost. Right? So repent and believe. Rest in God's grace. Run to the throne room of grace and get involved in the rescue mission. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.